You're listening to the Money Owners Podcast with Morgan Rochard. Money Owners is a podcast for people who want to be mentally and financially crushing it. This podcast does not provide investment advice and nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued to be investment advice. If you'd like more information on the podcast, the homework, coaching, and everything else Money Owners has to offer, visit www.moneyowners.com. What's happening, my fellow money owners? I am proud to say I'm getting this out on time. <laughs> and um, my husband got me a really cool Christmas gift. Um, he got me a microphone for Christmas slash Hanukkah. And I'm feeling really excited about it because I sound like the sound quality is really, really good. Uh, so I actually finally feel like I have a studio in my house, which I'm excited about. And hopefully you can tell the difference too. I'm going to try not to move too much of my chair now because my my microphone can actually pick up all those sounds as opposed to before this like crappy microphone I was using. Anyways, no big deal here. But um, yeah, so I hope everyone had a nice holiday and that everyone has a nice New Year's that's coming up. I was looking into what I wanted to talk about today and I realized I've never done a show on retirement planning, which seems crazy to me that we've never done anything on retirement planning. I think there were a few Q and A's where some retirement ish questions came up, but with the exception of that, like I haven't actually set aside time to talk to anybody about retirement. And I think part of that is just because it's, it's sort of like the same basic rules apply for accumulating. Um, they don't apply for distributing for sure, but the same basic rules apply as anything else with your personal finances. So savings affords you flexibility. And when I say savings, I don't mean savings in a checking account. I mean, savings like your emergency savings, plus your investments that are going to actually do something for you in this inflationary environment that we live. So, or in which we live. So with that in mind, um, there are kind of just a few, I, I wanted to, this to be a little bit more general. There are a lot of really nitty gritty, cool financial planning topics within retirement planning. And because we've never done any retirement planning, <laughs> this one's going to be a little bit more basic. And then we can get to uh, later on when I feel like it, I guess, or if people have questions, we'll get into some more of the nitty gritty um, topics regarding retirement planning. So there are just a few things I wanted to go over first, and then we'll discuss the Trinity study. And then we'll talk about the millionaire next door because all of it kind of ties in and I think you'll find it interesting. So the first thing with regards to retirement is if you're accumulating assets, the less you want to spend in retirement the less you need to save to become retired. I know this kind of sounds self-explanatory, but I feel like sometimes I need to explain this to people. So if you are willing to set aside 20% of your pre-tax income or more, then it, you will be able to retire and you will probably be able to retire much more quickly than somebody who is, you know, who's not doing that, provided that you don't then go spend that 20% on other things. So Let's say you earmarked 10% for retirement, but 10% was for a bunch of other goals that you had, which is totally fine, just depending on what is important to you. Um, then obviously you're not going to be able to retire as quickly as somebody who just said, hey, I'm going to set aside 20% of my pre-tax income. I'm going to set it all aside for retirement. That's my only goal. And that's what I'm going to do. And generally people who start out with zero and set aside somewhere between 20 and 25% of their pre-tax income. They can retire in 20 years or less, depending on what kind of rate of return they're able to get in the marketplace and everything else. So um, those are numbers that you can just keep in mind. And obviously the opposite is true, right? The more you want to spend in retirement, then the more you're going to need to save in order to make that happen. So 
Um, generally what I've found is that people want to live a pretty similar lifestyle in retirement to what they have now. Um, so if you're kind of, you know, going out to dinner a lot, maybe pre COVID and you, you know, you like occasional fancy outfit or something, or you like to travel a lot. Um, usually people who like to travel a lot, like to travel even more when they're retired because they have the time to do it. Um, these are all things to keep in mind of like, Hey, your spending might look very similar in retirement, especially depending on when you decide to retire. Um, if you have expensive tastes and habits, <laughs> whereas somebody who lives a pretty simple life, who, you know, is pretty fine spending, you know, uh, less than that and maybe only going on one trip per year or family's really close. So they don't really feel like they need to travel all over the place to see them, or they don't have expensive hobbies like boating or skiing or any of the other things that tend to rack up money. Um, those people are going to find that it's going to be a little bit easier for them to save and then subsequently retire. Um, so all things to keep in mind when you're creating your own retirement plan. The other thing to keep in mind too, is if you live in a high cost of living area, especially one with high taxes, you're going to need more savings and investment to support that if you want to stay in that place when you retire. So it's the reason why a lot of, you know, New Yorkers become snowbirds and they spend more than 180 days in Florida rather than living all their time in New York. And then they get out just in time for hurricane season. <laughs> um, what is it that they do? Yeah. You leave, you leave before hurricane season in September and then you go back down before it's cold again uh, or before. I don't even know. Honestly, my grandparents used to do this. I feel like I should know this a little bit better, but maybe I have baby brain and I'm, I'm in a fog right now. Anyways, not important. The point is though, right? People do that because there's high income taxes in New York city and New York state, and there's no income taxes in Florida. So same thing with a place like California, right? If you live in California, maybe you're going to go, I don't know, retire in Texas for some of the year so that you don't have to pay taxes on your income. Um, and if you do want to stay, because a lot of people really like, let's say, sunny California, and they want to stay there because the weather's really nice, um, then they're going to find that they need to save more to do that to support themselves because there's gonna, they're going to be paying a bunch of their income away in state taxes. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to add in here, um, which is not really talked about, but something I, I'm seeing, and it's a lot more common in America, especially because things are so expensive and people can't really retire because they're not saving enough, um, is part-time work. So the more you work in retirement, <laughs> and this kind of sounds like a weird thing to say, if you actually work in retirement, let's say you retire from, I don't know, whatever you, your career over the last 30 years, and then you go find a part-time job doing something else for every $50,000 you make or 40 to $50,000 you make in retirement, that's a million dollars less that you actually have to save. So let's say, I don't know, you're a musician and you run some sort of business with your music and you're able to work part-time doing that. Um, it might be, it behoove you to do that if you're not able to save enough money. Otherwise, even though you want to retire. Um, I bring up the music one because I've actually been recording at the studio for my audiobook, And I think it's like an easy thing because the, the guy who runs the studio, like he could just cut his hours, right? <laughs> it's like a really easy way for him to kind of get out of um, if he doesn't have enough money to save, for, to save for retirement that he can just, you know, okay, I'm, maybe I don't like help people record 100% of the time during the week or my normal hours. Maybe I cut down to 20 hours a week or whatever, and then I'll make some extra cash and I won't need to save as much for retirement. So um, you have to consider what is available to you, given what your skill set is, what you want to do, what you want to be doing in retirement. I mean, the other thing to keep in mind is that if you're kind of one of these people who is 
you're high strung, you, um, you are type A, you like doing things a certain way, you like, you know, feeling needed and feeling like you have a purpose and work gives that to you, then it's going to be really hard for you to just cold turkey stop working, even though that's what everybody else around you is doing. Um, in which case, you don't really need to worry as much about how much you have saved. I mean, eventually, you'll get to a place where you just feel like I my body can't do it. And I want to stop. Um, or hopefully, you know, you don't have a health event before you've saved enough. But it is something to consider if you want to do some kind of part time work, um, then you could actually spend a little bit more during your um, years before they become golden years. <laughs> so with all that in mind, um, withdrawal rates are something that we tend to talk about in the financial planning world. So withdrawal rates are what you can distribute from your investments in order to support your lifestyle when you no longer have income coming in from somewhere else. So um, there's a study that people generally reference, and it's called the Trinity Study. And the Trinity study looked at rolling periods going back to 1926, and they looked at withdrawal rates based on stock market conditions. What they did was they took a, um, they had a portfolio that was invested in 50% stocks, 50% bonds. And every year they saw what it did from 1926 and onward. And then they took withdrawal rates based on it. So what that means is like 1926, if you had a certain amount saved, they would multiply that by zero, by 4% um, and on December 31st, whatever that amount was. Um, and that would be what you would take out. And then they would do it again in 1927 and 1928 and so on through a 30-year period until you hit 1956. And then they, they started it over again. Okay, 1927, and we'll do a 30-year period. 1928, we do a 30-year period. And what they found was that 4% withdrawal rates work over any 30-year period. Um, and so people tend to look to the safe withdrawal rate as their sort of like their guiding star, I would say, or um, as to how they can withdraw from their portfolio. The 4% withdrawal rate, though, happens to be the most conservative way of looking at it. So if you're looking to retire early um, and well before a full retirement age, which in the United States, um, typically people think of 65, um, Social Security actually considers you older. You have to be at least 67 to actually get all of your Social Security money, depending on what year you're born and everything else. Um, so yeah, but if you're going to um, basically retire around the age of 65 and you do a safe withdrawal rate of 4%, you're probably actually going to die with a lot of money um, unless you have some sort of significant health event or something else because um, life expectancy right now is generally around 85 or so. So you're going to have actually a 20-year period. If you outlive that, obviously, you'll have a 30-year period um, or you know more than 20-year period or whatever, in which case maybe it does make sense to be more conservative. But we generally, when we think of people in retirement who retire at a normal retirement age, we generally recommend that they withdraw more than the 4%. We usually look more to a 5% rule, sometimes 5.5%, depending on the person and what they're doing and stuff. But keeping in mind that if the market goes down, you're going to adjust. Um, and that's kind of the thing that the study doesn't take into account. Um, the study only takes into account what would happen if you literally stuck by the rule every single year? So the other part of the study that's generally misunderstood, though, is that the withdrawal rate doesn't change. So, for example, if you put a million dollars into a 50 percent stock, 50 percent bond portfolio that every year, no matter what the market does, you take out forty thousand dollars, which is four percent. What actually is true is not that. <laughs> so if your portfolio goes down to, let's say, $980,000 by December 31st of the following year, you would take out $39,000 the next year, not $40,000. So you actually adjust with the fluctuations in the market. 
the thing that's nice about this too is that as you get older and as inflation is hitting, your portfolio hopefully is growing. And then hopefully the amount that you're withdrawing as a result of the growth is actually higher and matching with inflation. So um, in that regard, it actually, it, it makes sense when you think about it that way, but you also can't be too tied down with large fixed expenses and other things that keep you tied to a withdrawal amount that may or may not be something that you can meet depending on market conditions when you're retired. So that's why we typically like to tell retirees, you know, not to take on large mortgage payments, not to take on a yacht unless they have, you know, extensive savings and other things, um, not to buy expensive cars and other things. Like it's really, you got to be a little more thoughtful about what your what liabilities you're tying yourself to when you're in retirement because of withdrawal rates. Um, so I hope that makes sense. I try, I, I try to kind of like bring the Trinity study down to real life because I feel like we look at the study a lot and people hear the 4% rule a lot, but they don't really think about why and what it means and everything else. Um, and also that, you know, human beings, we can adjust. So um, when I often hear that pundits are like, oh, I don't like the safe withdrawal rate and they always have a reason because rules are bad, whatever. Um, like rules actually, <laughs> they're not bad, right? They give people guidelines. And then as human beings, we're able to adjust around that. So I mean, like a normal person, right? It's it's not going to be a big deal if let's say you had to take out four and a quarter one year instead of 4%. Um, it's not going to make or break it. It's, it's going to be an issue, right? If you can't do it when the market declines. Um, so that's just something to consider that like if your portfolio has a lot of volatility in it and other things going on that you're, you might have to cut spending much more significantly than someone, let's say, that's, I don't know, in just a 50-50 stock bond portfolio. That said, though, right, you have more potential for growth. If, let's say, you have more stocks in your portfolio, you own something like Bitcoin, you own, you know, real estate or whatever else you own in your portfolio as opposed to just owning bonds that are yielding basically nothing. Um, the other thing to consider with the study is that bond yields were much higher <laughs> back in the day when this study was done. So... Um, I mean, I think that they they continue to add to the study and everything else. And, and I think that the 4% number has continued to hold. Um, but that said, I mean, that's something to consider. And um, I certainly wouldn't try it on a portfolio that had more than 50% bonds, because um, especially with interest rates where they are right now, you're just not going to be able to keep up with inflation. So that's something to consider um, when you're thinking about withdrawal rates for yourself in the future, or how much you need to save and everything else. Um Ways of backing into the 4% though, right? Um, so if you take spending, you multiply it by 25. That's the same thing as um, doing 4% on your investments. Um, yeah, just going to leave it at that. Um, the next thing I wanted to talk about is the millionaire next door. So this actually came up from one of my tweets and somebody had replied about um, UAWs and PAWs. And I actually think that this ties in really nicely with retirement planning. So Millionaire Next Door is a great book. Um, if you haven't already read it, I highly recommend that you check it out. Um, and it just talks about really how you become wealthy um, and what are the factors that that heavily influence it. And one of the things that they talk about in the book is um, they have these two doctors. One's called Dr. North and one's called Dr. South. And Dr. North is what the authors consider to be a prodigious accumulator of wealth, which means that he's able to put away wealth much more quickly than the average person. And then versus the UAW, which is Dr. South, who is an under accumulator of wealth. They also have average accumulators of wealth too. So, um, but Dr. North and Dr. South are like, they're kind of main figures that they talk about in the book. And um, they use a formula in the book too, that like will help you sort of see where you measure up based on your age and your salary and how much you have saved. So the formula is your age times your salary, 
and then you divide that by 10. Okay, so, and then whatever number you come up with, that's what the average accumulator of wealth should have accumulated. If you have two times that or more, you are a prodigious accumulator of wealth. If you have less than that, then you are an under accumulator of wealth. So again, the formula is age times salary times 10% or divided by 10. So let's say you're 35, you make $100,000 a year. So 35 times 100,000 is 3.5 million. Divide that by 10, you should have at least $350,000 saved and invested to become an average accumulator of wealth. If you have two times that, if you have 700,000, you're now a prodigious accumulator of wealth. You're like Dr. North. If you have less than the 350,000, now you're an under accumulator of wealth. Um, and the reason why I like this is because um, when you actually do the math out on the average accumulator of wealth, it, it works out. <laughs> so I did some math for you so that you can sort of keep it in mind when you're thinking about how much you want to put away for retirement and invest. Um, so imagine um, there's a rule of 72, which I think we've talked about on this program before, but I'll just remind you. So rule of 72 is um, you take 72, you divide it by um, your rate of return, and then that equals the number of years that it's going to take for your money to double. So I like to use the, the number 7.2 as a rate of return because the math is really easy. <laughs> so if I take 72 and I divide it by 7.2, right, I get 10 years. So um, if on average I earn somewhere around 7.2% of my investments, then um, my net worth or whatever is invested will double every 10 years. So if you take that $350,000 from that example, at age 45, if you made 7.2%, you'd have 700 grand. By 55, you'd have 1.4 million. And by 65, you'd have 2.8 million. The thing about it, though, right, is that that sounds low and it sounds low to me, too. But um, that if you were actually able to accumulate, um, presumably you were able to accumulate $350,000, um, that means that you were saving in some regard unless you got some sort of inheritance. Um, so if you are actually saving, let's say you're able to save 20% of your income, you're putting away that $20,000 of your $100,000. Then now at 45, you have $990,000. At 55, you have 2.2 million. And at 65, you have 4.8 million. So why does that matter? <laughs> Great question. I'm so glad you asked. Um, so 4.8 million is actually 240 grand of income for you at age 65. And if you're saving 20%, and let's say your tax rate is somewhere around 20% too, then you're spending somewhere around 60 grand today in today's dollars. Um, and you'll actually have that your spending can basically stay the same in retirement uh, based on those numbers. So that's kind of the cool thing about that formula is that if you're doing it right and you're average, then you are able to retire at 65. Um, hopefully you're doing this stuff earlier. But if you're not and you're doing it later, then, you know, you just got to put away a little bit more to catch up. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of cool that like you can actually retire at an average normal retirement age. <laughs> <laughs> assuming that you do everything right, which I think is like, ugh, it's so defeatist. I really got to say that. I mean, I think um, one of the things that I found really interesting about the Bitcoin podcast that we had the last session is that, and my husband and I talk about this all the time, is you're not really rewarded by saving in, in dollars. Um, and it kind of reinforces bad behaviors um, because of inflation, right? It's like, it's so much harder to put money away. It's so much harder to have the right amount because your money is constantly being chipped away at. And then if you're not investing it properly, then it's even worse, right? And you have to make all of these decisions all the time to make sure that your money doesn't lose value. 
Whereas like with something like Bitcoin, you don't necessarily have to do that. And you're actually you're rewarded for doing what what you're supposed to be doing, which is saving money. Um, so I just I found that really um, I don't know why I'm, I'm tying this in right now, but I've just been thinking about it a lot because I guess because of everything that's going on right now, it's just been on my mind. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think that means put 100 percent of your savings in Bitcoin, um, but I do think it, it is worth looking at if. And if you haven't listened to that episode, I highly recommend going back and listening to it. I know it's a little bit longer than my normal episodes, but I think you'll appreciate the conversation that we had. And um, all right. Well, I actually I feel like I talked really fast this time and I kind of blew through that. And this microphone is really awesome. I've been having a good time with it. So a couple of housekeeping things. Um, just a reminder, I'm super pregnant, so I'm going to do my best to get as many episodes out before I go out on a quote unquote maternity leave. But um, basically whatever comes out in January is going to be, it will be what it is. Um, and then, um, I probably will not be putting anything out in February or in March. Um, so sorry, but bear with me. We're doing our best around here. <laughs> um, and, uh, if you have any questions you want answered live, our next episode is episode number 50. And I was going to do another Q and a. So if you want to send those questions in, you can DM me on Twitter, Morgan with an E Rochard or at money underscore owners. You can also go to our website, moneyowners.com forward slash ask Morgan with an E and you can submit those questions. Um, and yeah, if you haven't already picked up a copy of my book, what are you waiting for? It's awesome. <laughs> Go get it. It's the quick, uh, personal finance quick start guide and it's been out and I'm doing the audio recording right now. So an audible version will be out. I'm not exactly sure when it'll be out, but I have a few more recording sessions before I'm done. And then, um, it has to go through some sort of post-production before it's put on audible. So hopefully that's out sometime in end of January, but more likely in February or March. I don't really know how anything works. I'm just the author. And um, <laughs> yeah, uh, you can also, I'd love it if you give me a follow on Twitter, Morgan with an E Rochard. And if you like the book and you bought it, please write me a review. I would love to read what you have to say. And um, yeah, wishing you all very happy new year. And I'll talk to you in 2021. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Money Owners Podcast. As a reminder, Money Owners LLC does not provide investment advice. It is also not a tax advisor, and Morgan Rochard does not provide tax advice or tax preparation. Money Owners LLC is also not a law firm, and Morgan Rochard is not an attorney. Thanks for listening, and we hope you will tune in again for our next show.